This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard podcast. I'm your host and editor of Financial Standard, Jamie Williamson. The first Your Future, Your Super Performance test has been and gone, and we've seen 13 My Super products called out as underperformers. Members of those funds will have now likely received a letter suggesting that they look to house their retirement savings elsewhere. There's been a lot of discussion around what impact that letter might have. So recently I sat down with Jonathan Stefanoni from QMB Legal, who provided some background on the implications of the test and what the test might look like next time around. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Jamie. Um, obviously, the APRA performance test results have come out quite recently, and I wanted to kind of gather your your broad thoughts on the test and, and the results of the test. Yeah, sure. So it's less than 12 months ago when the policy was originally announced. So there's certainly been a lot that's happened since, since that announcement uh, a little less than a year ago. Uh, obviously, there was plenty of robust debate and discussion during the consultation period and before the laws were passed. So I don't really intend to cover a lot of that really interesting debate. <laughs> but I guess there are a couple of interesting things to note uh, around the annual performance assessment. I guess the first thing is I guess, an understanding that the test, like it's not perfect, um, but at the same time, it does provide a strong intervention that focuses trustee attention and some other activities towards the metrics that it's trying to measure. Okay. If we do look at the underlying theory, the test was something which was initially an investment performance test, and it's, it's later on developed to factor in administration fees as well, I guess, as as an acknowledgement of the fact that the trustee's got control over a lot of different levers and can uh, make adjustments between the different fees and costs to, um, I guess, in some ways, game the, game the test if, if they've got all those levers available to them. So it's interesting if we think that, you know, we've got this test which was initially investments focused. We've started to build in administration costs, um, but an important aspect of my super in insurance isn't covered by the test either. So we've got this mm -hmm. test which, you know, it, it's got some merit and some benefits, but it's not perfect either. On, on that, I'm curious as to whether you have any thoughts on, a lot of people are talking about how um, the whole narrative or, or what we've always been told is that past performance is not a, a true indicator of future performance. But now yeah. this is kind of telling us that actually maybe it is an indicator of future performance. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, like it's something that comes up in the discussion around like the retrospective aspects of yeah. this law. So if you do look at, uh, the application does go back a number of years in terms of performance. And it, it looks at a period in which trustees had no idea that these laws were going to come into effect. So they didn't uh, make investment decisions and strategy with this in mind. Uh, so having mm -hmm. said that, uh, we, we do turn our attention to that boilerplate um, disclaimer that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. But if we look at the I guess the policy application of this test, it very much uh, makes that assumption that past performance in terms of investment in particular is mm -hmm. being used as, I guess, as a, as a means of um, achieving some policy outcomes uh, around trying to encourage members to move out of these products. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, a couple of consecutive fails 
uh, to stop contributions flowing through these products. So it certainly does make a connection. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when it comes to talking about, you know, passing and failing, a lot of people have wondered why the scores themselves haven't actually been released. Do you think that there should be some more transparency around that? Because there are some some funds that are actually quite decent performers that were failed and then others that haven't performed as well as some of those failed funds that ended up passing. So do we should we be given more transparency around these scores? Well, I guess the methodology uh, has been made available. And in terms of what's currently been released, it really is only the pass or fail result. Uh, I do I do think I heard something recently that APRA may have been looking to release these results uh, at some point later in the year. Um, don't yeah. quote me on that, although I know you will, but I think I did hear something <laughs> that that may have occurred. Um, so you, I guess the question, is there merit in releasing the actual scores? I think trustees already have a pretty good assessment of how they've been assessed. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the trustees will have been undertaking their own analysis and monitoring just to understand uh, how likely they were to pass the assessment. If they um, do have the actual scores, it will enable them to then validate uh, the um, calculation and the models that they've adopted uh, for their internal yeah. monitoring. So I can certainly see some benefit to trustees if, if that were made available. Um, mm -hmm. It's another legal aspect of this, which uh, did come up. So the APRA determinations uh, around um, passing or failing the test, uh, they're not uh, or a determination which can be legally challenged. Um, so mm. just releasing the scores wouldn't open up the ability for a trustee to challenge a decision that wasn't in their favour. Uh, so if you think about whether they're useful to other parties, I don't think members would really benefit much from having this information available you get probably uh, niche engagement at best with that kind of information. Uh, surely the media um, may be able to make something out of those scores as well. But on balance, I, I wouldn't think that there'd be a great amount of benefit or harm from them being released one way or the other. Yeah, okay, interesting. So in terms of the, the funds that failed, now obviously they have to let their members know that they failed. And I think they had 28 days um, from the date that they were notified that they'd failed to do that. Within the regulations, it is kind of outlined what they need to tell their members. And, and I think that um, the letter, you know, for, for some of us who sort of, you know, work within the industry or, or around the industry would understand that it is general advice. Um, do you think that there is a chance, though, given it has to include some pretty specific information around a, a member's account balance and, and the specific fees that they're paying each year, do you think there's a chance that, that some members will perceive this to be personal financial advice and kind of follow it to the, to the letter? Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right, Jamie. So the regulations are really prescriptive with the, the schedule prescribing exactly what needs to be sent out. Uh, by mm -hmm. trustees that didn't, didn't pass the test. So taking on face value, uh, I think that um, most members who do take the time to, to, to read what is sent to them uh, are likely to read and understand that notice as being something which is advising them uh, that they should think about changing the product that they're currently in. If you have a look at the wording, it says uh, we're required to write to you and suggest that you consider moving your money into a different superannuation product. Uh, so that's a, a pretty 
explicit um, indication that the members should think about uh, changing the product that they're invested in. Um, and I think that's the intent of the policy as well. The intent of the policy is to try and encourage some of these members to move out of the product that they're currently in. So yeah. from a member's perspective, I certainly think that uh, there will be a perception that the um, notice is providing, I guess, a, a nudge, um, which they could say is personal advice, but that's not the same thing as, I guess, the letter being found to be um, personal advice from a legal perspective. Um, yeah. I guess it's a different question and test which would be applied. Uh, likewise, it doesn't mean that ASIC would be likely to commence enforcement action uh, against yeah. the trustee for issuing the letter. So uh, I, I'd um, be a little bit cautious to say that this is a bigger issue than it actually is, given the low risk of ASIC commencing enforcement action. And the fact that I think there's at least a, a robust argument that could be made uh, in mm -hmm. that the uh, letter wouldn't correctly be interpreted as being personal advice off the back of the SPAC decision. Yeah, it is. it does sort of seem a little bit like there's almost a bit of a grey area there where it's a, it sort of seems like it's quite close to the Westpac case where, you know, the, there was the general versus personal advice when it came to telephone calls in regards to, to swapping super products. How is this different to that? Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a really important question because, um, as we know, if that uh, communication, the email, the letter is found to be personal advice, it then invokes all of these other obligations on the trustee you know, around providing financial services guides, a statement of advice, um, best interest obligations, etc. So that's a really important question. Um, if, if I was to try and put an argument together as to why uh, this letter isn't to be interpreted in that way, um, we need to take ourselves back to the, um, I guess the key piece of the legislation which defines uh, personal advice. And if I paraphrase it, it essentially says that it, personal advice, if it's a recommendation or opinion intended to influence a person in making a decision in relation to a financial product, or most importantly, and this is the bit that the Westpac case focused on, or could reasonably be regarded as being intended to have such an influence. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd argue that the intention of the notice, which uh, these 13 trustees are going to need to issue, is to comply with the requirement to provide the notice and to communicate the results of the government's annual performance assessment and not necessarily intended to influence uh, the member to transfer out. So um, I guess there is an argument which um, I would adopt if I were to be arguing against this letter being seen as personal advice. Yeah, as you said, the intention of the letter is to kind of just notify them that maybe they should move and that they're just going by, they're doing what the government's kind of told them to do. Whereas the Westpac one, you could probably argue that their intent was a little bit more self-serving in order to, yeah. to get those customers to roll into their own product. Exactly. And if you do, if you read into the prescribed wording of the notice, uh, that's supportive, supportive of that view that this, um, this statement is something which is required to be sent to the members. And it mm -hmm. clearly states that the purpose of the notice is in relation to the government's performance test. So I think yeah. the wording, you know, it can be seen as supportive of that view that the intention 
um, is is merely to to communicate the, the government's assessment. Yeah. Okay. So, in addition to that letter that they have to send, are funds allowed to communicate with members in any other way regarding the performance test result? And in if they are, like, is there rules as to what they can and can't say, or as to you know what kind of time frame has to pass between the initial letter and then them sending a follow up saying you know, whatever else they want to say in regards to the test? Uh, so funds can communicate with their members in relation to the annual performance test outside the prescribed content. And we know that some trustees um, have, have already done that. Mm -hmm. um, but while there are no express prohibitions around it, there are certainly um, some things which trustees need to be really mindful of if they are looking to issue any related communications. Um, yeah. now I know that uh, prior to APRA issuing its determinations, uh, ASIC did get on the front foot and engage with a lot of trustees that were um, close to um, or possibly failing the test and just provided a bit of an overview of some of the risk areas and the things that ASIC would be looking at uh, with any such communications. Uh, so if we look at what is an, an important risk for trustees to consider more so than a rule, um, it's really important that any other communications which are, are sent out in relation to the annual performance assessment contain factual information uh, and not misleading or deceptive as ASIC has uh, really robust powers under the ASIC Act, which they uh, use uh, quite frequently uh, to pursue actions against trustees where they feel that information being provided uh, isn't uh, factual or could be misleading or deceptive. And what we find is that uh, those actions where they result uh, in a finding against a, a trustee often also result in a breach of the, I guess the omnibus efficiently, honestly and fairly obligation under the Corporations Act as well. So yeah. it's really important trustees uh, uh, are quite mindful of ensuring that any communications aren't misleading and deceptive. Um, we know that ASIC is almost certain to scrutinise any communications which are sent out, given mm -hmm. uh, there aren't going to be high volumes of it. Um, they did highlight in their letter that uh, any communication in relation to the performance assessment uh, needed to be presented in a balanced and factual way, and it needed to be consistent with the intent of the reforms and that if the communications were undermining the intent, that ASIC would be likely to take the view that the communications were misleading. So I guess yeah. what that means in short is that there can be no contradiction of the content that's in the prescribed letter. Uh, and if there is, it's highly likely to at least attract some scrutiny from ASIC. Okay, interesting. I guess now the only thing to do is to kind of look ahead, obviously, funds are going to face the music again in 12 months and there has been a lot of debate around whether the test should look a little bit different whether some of the you know benchmarks that have been used should be changed what what do you think the test is going to look like again this time next year like how is it going to evolve do you think uh, well I guess we uh, need to be mindful of the fact that the policy intention is to extend this to trustee directed products as well. So not just high super products. Uh, so it's possible uh, we start to move into that phase where we start to consult on 
on what this looks like for other uh, non-MySuper trustee-directed products. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to be quite interesting. Uh, obviously, with the aspects of the test uh, applying on two consecutive fails, uh, we're going to see a lot of attention on, on those 13 products which failed the first test uh, mm -hmm. to look at whether they are likely to trigger that uh, second consecutive fail. So I think that uh, that's an interesting aspect. And so I guess it's, it's possible that there are circumstances where the uh, trustee of some of these products is aware quite early that it's very unlikely or almost impossible for them to um, not fail it in the second mm -hmm. consecutive year. So it'll be really interesting to see how they go about managing that and whether they do look uh, at options around consolidation or product changes. Great, well, thank you so much for joining us. No trouble. It's um, good to speak to you on an interesting topic. That was Jonathan Stefanoni, partner at QMB Legal. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please remember that you can subscribe to Financial Standard for notification of our weekly episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 